at Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. We'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman who it is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said to them, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender, is it going? There he is. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing our sermon series called Soul Food, and I am grateful to be able to bring this beautiful passage, Luke 7, 36 through 50, to you this morning. My name is Nathan Didlake. Again, I am the worship and discipleship pastor here at the church. It is my, it's weird to, to not be singing this morning for you, with you all, but I am grateful uh, for the opportunity to open God's word and to share, first, a life-changing cup of coffee. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am what what people would call a coffee connoisseur. In fact, that's the only time in any given context I hear the word coffee joined with the word connoisseur. In fact, it's the only time I ever hear the word connoisseur even used. But I love a cup of coffee. And Jason and Jeremy shared his his favorite meal of all time yesterday. Well, I'm going to share mine. It's actually unrelated to the future of this message, 100%, but it it felt like if he's going to strut, so will I. This coffee, as you see here, is from Intelligentsia Coffee in Los Angeles, California. And to say that this cup of coffee changed my life is not an overstatement. I remember sitting there, I had heard Intelligentsia's name before, and I had heard great things about them. They are very well known across the coffee world, for they consistently bring out coffee roasters and coffee baristas who 
win competitions all over the world. And so while I was in Los Angeles for a very boring wedding, I thought, let's stop here and let's finally try the, 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 the zenith, the mecca of coffee. I walked in and there was just like, it was like any coffee shop. It was very beautiful, very like picturesque scenery. Like everything was just put together so nicely. And I looked and see the cup of the cost of the cup of coffee, $7. It's like, ah, okay, well, when in Rome, let's, let's do what the Romans do. Let's spend $7, seven well-earned dollars for coffee. So they, I order it, I sit down, they hand it to me. An explosion of flavor. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I literally couldn't believe it. I had never tasted anything like it in my life. In fact, I will go so far as to say it changed my relationship to food for all time. People typically want coffee to taste as good as it smells. This was another level. This was suddenly realizing that God had given us something that I had every day just poured cream into. How did I poured cream into it that day? I was afraid. I was scared. This was an unbelievable moment. And I guess this does tie into our service um, today and the, the message. Because that cup of coffee, I realized from that moment on, every morning I needed to wake up and try to replicate that flavor profile in my home and in my life. And if you ever come and have a meeting with me, I will first thing offer you coffee. And if you say no and say, I'd like tea, I will pray for you. But then if you accept the coffee, I don't care what you put in it, but if, you're gonna, if I'm making you coffee, I'm going to make it on my own terms. And what's funny is that throughout the years, being in pastoral ministry for now, I don't know, 12 years? I don't know. I was a senior pastor for six years before I moved here. And it's amazing how people get so nervous about meeting with the senior pastor because they think that I have some channel to God that they don't have. And they think I'm going to ask them these like gut-wrenching questions that are going to penetrate to the soul. I don't have all those things. But what I do is in order to diffuse their nerves is I nerd out over coffee. And you can see people go from being like nervous to wait, what? He's really weird. I have, I've counted them, 12 different methods to brew coffee in my home, each one of them more sophisticated than the other. I have spent time in New York City learning this. Why? Because I love it. But another thing is because it makes me feel the presence of God. And it's a, I struggle with anxiety a lot. And it's one of those like closed environments where I can just be there and experience something delicious that God has given us. But another thing I can do is be there with somebody else and show them who God is through something as simple and basic as a cup of coffee. Today, we are going to look at a story in which Jesus shared a meal with some Pharisees. And it was interrupted by this lady who nobody liked, and everyone wanted Jesus also to abhor. And we're going to see how Jesus used an God-sized hospitality to bring her in, to cover her sins, and to set her free. And I want us to see at the end of the day that our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of his grace. How we respond to this God who invites us in reveals how much we understand of his grace. So let's look at the scene. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. One of the disciples asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing beside, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. In the exact previous verses to what I just read, we find the greater context for what makes this passage so intensely scandalous. In the exact previous verses, Luke shows Jesus was interacting with the crowds and interacting with the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as you may recall, was the one voice crying in the wilderness. He baptized Jesus, and he was, in the Bible story, the last great prophet before the Messiah's coming. He was supposed to come and say, not only is the Messiah coming, but he is here. And from that point on, the biblical story went from being expectation to reality. The expectation of someone who would come and set up the kingdom of God to the reality of the one who has come. And John was the final page of that before the story turned into the story of Jesus. John heralded the good news of what it would be like when the kingdom came. And while he was proclaiming that kingdom, the king came. It's amazing. But even John the Baptist got confused. He was arrested and put in prison, and he wanted to be sure that he had placed his hope in the real thing. So in John chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, we find that John the Baptist has sent his own disciples to Jesus to say, are you really who you think we think you are? I mean, we think you are, but is it really you? So in John, Luke chapter 7, verse 20, we read, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now, you would think that Jesus would say yes or no at this, at this point. But instead, he does a full Jesus and does this in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of the diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended to me. Now, this might seem like a non-answer, but it's actually a totally legitimate answer. Matt Luan, who plays our drums, is a, is a woodworker. If you were to go into his shop, you would see projects at various levels of completion. You would see tools aplenty. You would see a picture of Ron Swanson on the wall, the patron saint of woodworking. And then you would see Matt in the middle, covered in dust and, and you know, shop stuff, grime, and if someone were to walk in that and look at all this stuff and say, are you a woodworker? Matt would be right to say, uh, what do you think? What do you think? Look around. Do you see what it is? It'd be like walking into Picasso's uh, lab. <laughs> Picasso didn't have a lab. He was an artist. You're walking in and seeing paints and like all sorts of portraits and things that he was working on. I mean, like, are you a painter? And Picasso being like, what do you think? That's what Jesus was doing here. Only the one who was to come, the Messiah, the King, could do what Jesus was doing. Only that one could do it. So Jesus is saying, look around. These are the actions of the one who is to come, the prophet who is to come. Now, we have the benefit of looking up, picking up this book, the Bible, and reading the whole story in one sitting, if we want to, and seeing the whole story unfold. But these people were still living it out in real time. They didn't know what the answers to these questions were. 
And so for them to go up to Jesus and be like, ah, is it you? It made sense. They were hoping and expecting. And it would have been easier for Jesus to say, yes or no. But instead, Jesus says, look at what I'm doing. They genuinely wanted to know, is Jesus the, the Messiah, the king, the prophet who was to come? So fast forward in the passage, and you come to this point where Jesus himself is reflecting on the ministry of John the Baptist. It's a beautiful passage, and we should totally take time to study it, but we won't right now. But this is what he says at the end of this section. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace calling to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is summarizing whether Jesus is summarizing their confused response to him, this insult, look at him, an ins, uh, a friend of drunk of tax collectors and sinners is something that Jesus is like, that's totally who I am. Jesus totally absorbs this insult and says, yes, you got it right. I am one eating and drinking, and I love those who are broken. I love the, out, the outcasts, and I love those who are super sinners. Wisdom is justified by her children. This is, he's not at all perturbed by the accusation. He said, let me just show you just how far I'm willing to go as a person who's willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That is immediately what precedes this passage today of, a, of Jesus eating with the Pharisees and eating amongst tax collectors and sinners. So we see our scene Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. In verse 36, we see one of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. If you're new to reading the Old New Testament, you should know this, that the Pharisees are pretty much the bad guys. Anytime they're lifted up, there's only a couple occasions where they're not shown in a terrible light. But if you hear the word Pharisee, bad guy. If you want to insult someone, call them a Pharisee. They won't understand it. They'll probably be confused bad guy. But this is what they are. This is a religious sect. They weren't the priests. They were a religious sect who had committed themselves to being so holy they would bring God's kingdom back. And they had committed themselves also to teaching others how to fulfill the law so that God would come back. Their holiness and attentiveness to literal strict interpretations of the Old Testament text meant that they were gatekeepers for everyone else from the kingdom. So that despite their absolute attention to God's word, they missed God when he actually showed up. And they also kept everyone God loved out of the kingdom. But Jesus had compassion on them. So you can see, a Pharisee asked him to come to the table. And Jesus was like, sure. Because Jesus came to save this man too. So Jesus is at the table, the guest of honor. And this is what happens. Verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
Okay. Let's picture this. Now, if you're the kind of person who likes to close your eyes and visualize things, now would be the time. In the first century, tables were low to the ground. They weren't sitting at a chair. They were lounging. Jesus was on his left side, eating with his right hand. And this table was surrounded with all the most important Pharisees. These are the creme de la creme of society. And there in the middle is the guest of honor, Jesus. Now imagine yourself there. There's party and talk and there's all sorts of uh, theological debate with Jesus. There's all sorts of excitement that the guest of honor, the society, this new person who is a society's new prophet perhaps, is, has entered the room and is now eating with you. And then suddenly, all that noise is interrupted by a, the sobbing of someone who was not invited. A woman who has the reputation of being a sinner, whatever that meant, has entered. And she's not just crying, she's sobbing. Have you ever been in a public space where somebody had completely lost control of their emotions? If you have, then you are close to understanding what walked into this room. This woman goes over to the feet of Jesus with a jar of alabaster ointment, but then her tears get ahead of her, and standing over Jesus' feet, remember, he's lounging on his side, her tears began to lay on his, on his feet. So she stoops down, takes her hair, and begins to wipe it up as if that's going to fix it. But then the more tears fall and begin to cover his feet. So she begins to wipe even more with her hair. And then, losing herself even more, she begins to kiss and caress his feet, losing her composure altogether. And then she does the thing which she came to do. She cracks open a bottle of alabaster ointment and pours the entire thing over his feet. Have you ever been in the room when someone sprayed themselves with Axe body spray? I have been a young prepubescent boy, and I know what it's like to suddenly become stinky and have to overcome that trauma. And then a friend comes up to me and is like, Axe body spray, it's the color blue, which must be amazing smelling. So you do what any boy does. As it just fills the room. I had a friend once who literally took it, did that number, and then... And then he sprayed a cloud in the room and would walk through it because he thought somehow that worked. So it's one thing to be in the room with a bunch of stinky young boys. It's a whole other thing to be in the room with them with, uh, armed with Axe body spray. Immediately the room changes. It doesn't matter how much fun you're having. That room is awful suddenly. You want to get out. That smell, which in the smallest dose is offensive and sulfuric and reminds you of the fires of hell, suddenly becomes an exit plan. We've got to get out. Save yourselves. The fire is burning and it's in our souls. That's what happens here. Have you ever smelled alabaster? It's a very rare ointment, and it's terrible. Thank God for the people who are essential oils collectors because someone gave us alabaster ointment, and having read this passage, I was like, huh, I wonder what that, God Almighty. It's offensive smelling. It's so powerful. And she took the whole thing, cracked it open, and poured it on Jesus' feet. There was not a single person in that room who could ignore her worship of Jesus. 
Please understand, what was once a party celebrating this new fancy prophet had suddenly been interrupted by worship that was so overpowering that it had nearly the entire room choking for breath. But the Pharisee doesn't see this as a beauty, as a divine answer to prayer. He uses this as an opportunity to judge the woman. In verse 39, we see, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. This is really the question that the the Pharisee has and everyone in the room has. Is Jesus a prophet? Well, obviously not, probably, because how could he be? He's being touched by a sinner. That's disgusting. It's absolutely amazing to me that he would have considered a holy and righteous act of God had Jesus kicked her straight in the face. He would have thought, yes, he's a prophet. Had Jesus judged her like he did, Think about the horror of bad religion when you think that destroying someone's worship, broken as it is, is actually the sign that God is present. But Jesus receives it. And so everyone in the room is like, well, now, they, now it's clear. He's a phony. Interesting person, no less, but a phony. There's no way this guy can be the prophet of God. But Jesus proves he's a prophet, but not only knowing who the person, who the lady is, but knowing what Simon is thinking. I like to think I know what people are thinking, but I don't. Jesus did. So he tells him a parable. Verse 71, I mean 741. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, about $4,000, and the other 50, about $400. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose to whom the larger debt was canceled. And Jesus answered, yes. The scene is simple. This is a very simple parable. Both are in debt. One is about 4,000. One is about 400. But both can't pay it. Just, they're both broke. There's no way. One is in worse shape, but they're both in bad shape. But the lender forgives both. And so who do you think loves them best? I love this passage, and I immediately imagine my student loan debt. But then I talk to my doctor friends, and I hear about their student loan debt, and I think, well, if there was forgiveness they would love them more because that's how debt works. You feel the choking and the loss of personhood when you're in debt. You feel the absolute, you're you're beholden to somebody else. Your money, which you work hard for, is immediately going out the door. And Jesus and Simon are agreeing with each other. The person who is forgiven more is more grateful, loves more. And so Jesus interprets his own parable immediately. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my head, my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at the severity of this contrast. You have the religious leader who has all of his ducks in a row. Then you have this broken woman. But Jesus flips it upside down. It's the worship and adoration of this broken person that he adores the most. Now, I'm going to correct a misunderstanding in this passage that's very common. In the first century, people walked around in what was basically sandals, like the chacos of their day. And they walk around in the dirt and the grime, and when they entered a home, it was customary for the lowest servant of the house to wash people's feet everywhere. And especially if you were having a party, the guest of honor would receive their feet washing, they'd be anointed, they'd be like ushered into the best place. I don't think what Jesus is saying is that he didn't experience any of those things at Simon's house. Probably he did. Probably Simon's servant did it. What Jesus is saying to him is that, Simon, you didn't do it. She did it. You didn't. Simon, you made the lowest servant in your house do it. But she, knowing the depths of my love, did all of that without even being asked. It seems highly unlikely that Simon the Pharisee forgot these customary things. Instead, what Jesus is challenging is the fact that Simon felt that he was above worshiping Jesus. Simon felt that he was above bringing honor to the one who could bring the sun and the moon and the earth and the skies together by the word of his power. You didn't wash my feet, he says. She did. You didn't kiss me with a greeting. She did. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She did. You gave it off to someone else because you are above it, Simon? You honestly think you're above the God of the universe? Why didn't the Simon the Pharisee himself offer the most fundamental acts of kindness? Because Simon didn't believe he had much to forgive. Simon thought he was fine. He thought Jesus should be happy to be in the same presence with him. Come hang with me and my cronies, Lord, because we are okay. Whatever the case, I mean, Simon was a Pharisee, so he obviously believed that sin existed, so he would do these ritual things to cleanse himself. Whatever the case, Simon still believed he was above adoring Jesus. That woman, not so. You can point to the intensity of the room. Everyone, everyone was stuck listening to this unbelievable crying and now, imagine how the room turns against Jesus when suddenly he's told a parable against his host. You ever gone to a party and insulted the host? Try it. See how much fun it is. Jesus just does that. So not only was this party going well and then interrupted, and then suddenly the explosion of smell was there, then Jesus turns a parable against the very person who invited them all to eat. You can imagine just how tense the room was. He has told the host that his, his reaction to him was less than this woman that everyone in town knew as a sinner. And so Jesus, knowing everyone in the room, has judged him and this woman poorly. He looks at the woman with joy and says, your sins are forgiven. Go. Which brings to mind the question, did she think he would give, forgive the sins or was she so moved by who he was that she had to worship him, forgiveness or not? I honestly believe that the woman came in 
hoping for healing, but not expecting much. And then finding to her joy that Jesus would give her all that her heart longed for. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was the king of kings. He had the ability to forgive sins. And the woman received from Jesus that grace that results in love. She came into that room with nothing else to lose. All that she was was laid bare. The more I grow in ministry, the more I grow as a person, the more I'm really attracted to broken people. I hate the sophistication of masks that we put on at church. It's tiresome to me. It makes me depressed. But when you walk into the room with someone who is broken and knows it and no longer has the willingness to hide it, that's where I feel at home. Because that's where grace is found. We're so good at a church as like, well, we dress up nice. My clothes are nicer than yours. My, my hair is put together more coiffed than the other person's. My ability to speak without cussing accidentally is more refined. And we judge the person next to us because they don't meet our righteous standards. But if you're in the presence of a broken person who's met Jesus, that's what true beauty looks like. This is one of the reasons I love being around people who've gone to anonymous groups like AA or NA or SA or any of them. is because they've gotten into the habit of recognizing I'm a broken person. And when you meet them, they minister to you out of their brokenness. Imagine what it would be like to have a church that was so effusive about how honest we are about our brokenness. Because we all are. Come on. There's nothing else to hide. Really? Do we have that much to be ashamed of? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But we have a great and awesome God. And this woman received grace, forgiveness, a conscience that was clean. She went in that room knowing she had to worship Jesus and probably not expecting forgiveness and came out clean. You know what it's like to walk into a room with a dirty conscience, hoping to God that no one finds out what's inside that brain of yours. Imagine the freedom she felt as she walked out and all the weight of hell had been lifted off her soul. And she was happy and finally good. But Simon missed it. He refused the grace of Jesus and it resulted in little love for Jesus. Whatever his motive for inviting him to the house, he didn't think his soul needed forgiveness and grace. And very often I think this is where many of us are. He would have been pleased had Jesus condemned this woman at the same level he had. Be aware, be wary of Christianity that joys and condemnation of others. Be afraid and run from Christianity that gets happy and sniggers with laughter when somebody is ousted as a sinner. Be wary of that. That's not the heart of your Messiah. That's not the heart of the one who loves you. He would have thought that had Jesus condemned that woman that that would have been a holy and righteous act. But he doesn't know God. He, but she receives what he misses. He didn't know the depths of his needs, nor did he care. Now, at this point, this is the point in any sermon where you, we have to stop and become very reflective. 
And so I want to follow the questions that Jesus asks. He asks Simon this, do you see this woman? Jesus is asking for Simon to do more than recognize the physicality of a human in his presence. Jesus is asking Simon to behold her worship and her heart. A heart that Simon has judged sinful. Simon wasn't wrong. The woman was sinful. But so was Simon. And that's what he missed. Jesus came to save Simon the Pharisee too. Jesus asks, do you see her? Well, how could you not? She's suddenly become the center of the attention. But more than that, no, Simon, do you see her? Do you see what I have done in her? Do you see how she, responding to me, has become a person filled with worship? Simon, do you love to the extent that she loves? Do you, does your heart pour forth towards God in the same way that hers does? And if you read Jesus' story, you find that there's a direct correlation between the forgiveness and grace that we've received and the sin that has been forgiven. Wait, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. There's a direct correlation between the sin that's been forgiven and the thankfulness for the grace received. We're all sinners, people. Friends, there's nothing more to hide. The more you look into the holy, righteous face of God, the more you're going to find that the depths of our souls are sinful. Even the ways that we sometimes care for others are laced with sin and this desire to be known and pride. Even the good things we do can be so overpowered by sin. But when we see just how great is our need and how great is his love, our thankfulness overflows and so Jesus looks at Simon and says, Simon, how much do you love me? And I read this and I think, Nathan, how much do you love Jesus? And I ask you, how much do you love Jesus? Is it proportional to the grace that he's given you? Or are we that delusional to think that we don't really need him that much? Look around at the broken people he's embraced not just in this room, but when you meet Christians here and there, you find that God has met people in some fractured places. And you began to see the overwhelming, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God, whose grace is eternal, whose love is magnificent, and it's able to absorb the weight of sin. Do you want to be loved and be loved by Jesus? Recognize the depths of your sin and how much he's forgiven you. That will show you how much there is to love. The final thing is I want to ask what the woman would say. The woman would look at us right now and say, stop looking at your sin. Look at Jesus. Here we have to straddle a line. I don't want to bang you over the head with a set of rules. I don't want to say, love him more or you're a sinner. Or love him more because you're a sinner. Like that, Both of those things become rules and ordinances. If the woman were here to talk with us, she wouldn't bang us with spiritual platitudes. She'd say, just look at him. Look at him. 
Look at his love and his goodness and light. Look at his righteousness and his healing. Look at all that he is and all that he's done. Look at his glory and grace and his kindness. Look at his beauty and the way that he reaches out to all. Look at him. And when you look at him, you see the depth of your need, but you meet the depths of his love. She came in to worship him, and she walked out set free. And if your heart is sinful and broken and cold, you too can be set free. We spend so much time in our lives trying to feel religion when most of the work should be done just staring at Jesus like this woman did. Have you taken the time to stare at Jesus with this woman? Have you taken the time to be amazed and confused, bewildered, and overwhelmed by him? That's what the woman did. And when she came to the end of herself, she found a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. The overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. Today, we celebrate this Jesus. We celebrate a God who reveals his grace to us. We celebrate a God who welcomes broken people into his presence. So I say to you, are you broken? Look at Jesus. Is your heart fractured beyond recognition? Look at Jesus. See the one who holds your heart in his hand. See the one who knows you inside and out. See the one who's not ashamed of your tears and will not kick you when you run to him. See the one who can set your soul free. This is Jesus who we worship. This is the prophet of God. And this is the one who's inviting you to have a meal at his table. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.